Hey, my name is, uh, is Jason. I'm the youth pastor. And so if you're, if you're new around here and you're wondering why this guy's getting up on stage with his funny looking hair, um, I'm the youth guy. And so we had this contest this last week and, and our youth group, uh, they, they made a certain benchmark that they were looking for and they got to dye my hair pink, but it kind of didn't really take because my hair's so dark. And so it really stuck in this one gray spot right here. And so I just, I want to say ahead of time, like, I know it looks funny. Don't think that I got like some blunt force trauma and I'm like wounded. It's hair dye, okay? So let's all just, we'll get over it, okay? So that, uh, I, I would love to just um, start with uh, some confession time with you guys, because I feel, like, uh, I feel like we're in church, and we ought to really be honest with one another. And so what I want to do is I want to just kind of confess uh, an issue or a problem in my life, and then we'll kind of go from there, and, and we'll see where, uh, where Jesus takes us today. But before we do, I, man, I am excited that we are experiencing church the way I think Jesus meant for it to be experienced. We're, we're worshiping Jesus. We're baptizing people. We're sending people off to mission work. Um, we get to hear the word of God. And so um, I hope that you guys are feeling as blessed as I do today. Just kind of, it's like a, the whole package. There's just a bow on it. And so I'm hoping that Jesus um, speaks to us today through his word. So this, this confession time, um, I, have, I have this problem, right? Um, I'm really good at start, or bad, kind of depends on how you want to describe it, right? At starting projects, and then not finishing those projects. Does anybody else identify with that? Like, that, is that you? Maybe you've got a spouse. <laughs> There's lots of people that are raising other people's hands in the room, right? Like, I identify with it, but not because it's my problem, right? So I've got this project at home. I'm going on about eight months working on a closet. Just a closet. That's all it is. I'm, I'm at the eight-month mark, and it's still not done. It's to the point that, like, from the outside, it kind of looks done, and so we've just sort of stopped. But um, the way that the house was designed, we had a closet that we didn't really like, and we had a, a, a kind of an empty space in the wall, and so I had, like, a lot of enthusiasm about putting in this, this closet with, like, French doors that are wooden and stained, you know? And, uh, and that sounds really cool, right? Like, it sounds really beautiful. Do you know how horrible it is to stain a door? That sucks, right? Like you're, there's the sanding part, and that takes longer than you think it's supposed to. And then the staining part, and then you've got one side of one door, and you get French doors. There's four sides there, right? And so after a while, it just kind of gets old. And to be honest with you, I've worked my way through my house staining different doors as we're kind of remodeling the house, and I'm on door number nine. And so I'm really kind of done with it. Right, and so I've got this project that just won't end. And I was I was super stoked about it at the beginning. But now, I would just rather pay somebody to finish the job for me, right? I would just rather never touch it again. And so we're to the point now where we're getting, we're kind of getting comfortable with the fact that it's not done. Has anybody ever been there either with a project? Yeah, you get started, it sort of fizzles, and then after it fizzles for a while, maybe you feel a tinge of guilt for a little bit of time, and then eventually the guilt goes away and you just get used to it. And I can, I can prove it for you guys that didn't raise your hand. How many of you guys have ever sold a house? How many of you guys put off that one project until it was for sale? Yes, everybody knows what I'm talking about now, right? We get used to living with stuff that's kind of undone, that's kind of unfinished, right? And we've, it's just a pain. It's, it's hard to finish a project because something better might come along. And though we wanted the result at the beginning, our interest wanes and it just sort of sits there undone. And I think what's underneath that, for me at least, is there's an underlying character problem behind that. And the problem is that it doesn't, I don't, um, I think I'm settling 
I'm settling for what's easy. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm, I'm settling for being okay with the fact that it's undone. And I think that that works its way out in lots of different areas of my life, if I think about it. And I'll bet it's true for you guys. I'll bet you that if you think about it, there are lots of areas of your life where you're real excited to start something. Or when something begins, it's really exciting. And so you've got a lot of energy, enthusiasm, you're into it. And then after a while, it's sort of, the interest wanes. And we sort of slow down a little bit. And pretty soon, there's something else to be interested in, right? And so the problem with my closet project is, it doesn't just affect me, does it? Right? Like, I've got other people that live in my house. And to be honest with you, it puts a little bit of strain on my relationship with my wife. Right? Um, she'll tell you that the closet has been not done for nine months. Right? Like, she's actually keeping track. Right? She knows exactly how long it's been since I started that closet project. And for her, she would love for it to be done, but it's entirely in my hands. And so it's affecting her, too. But you know what? To be honest, if I wait long enough, she won't care either. Because right? there's, the, there's something in all of us that we get used to the things that are undone, unfinished, halfway in our life. Right? Now, I think that this, this shows up in our Christianity, too. I think that this shows up in our relationship with God. I think that we've convinced ourselves that it's okay to be halfway in, to sort of have started strong or to be interested at the beginning and then be half engaged and just sort of coast in our relationship with Jesus. Our heart really isn't in it, right? And that's my problem with the closet. Like, I was really interested at the beginning, but then my heart's not really in it. And I think the same thing happens in our faith, that at some point, it just kind of becomes routine, and just like an unfinished closet, we stop working on our faith, right? We just live with it. It just, it's whatever condition it's in now is okay, because the rest of it's going to be hard work. Right? We want the result, but then our interest wanes. And see, I like to equate this with, I'm going to call it gospel light. And I, to be honest with you, I think that the big C church, the church, needs to apologize for, for presenting gospel light. You guys, when I say gospel light, you guys know that there's like, there's like real beer and then there's the, the light beer, like the fake stuff, right? And so the same thing is true with, with the gospel, that there are, there are times when we love the fact that you can come to Jesus as you are, right? We love parts of the gospel that are really no risk and high reward. But then when it comes to the harder things, sometimes we just say, if I just kind of leave that undone long enough, it stops affecting my heart and we coast, right? Just like the closet project. And I'm gonna call that gospel light. And so we're sorry. We're sorry if we've ever presented that to you, that for some reason you get a no-risk, all-reward investment in Jesus. It's just simply not true. It's not true. And so what I want to do is we're going we're gonna to transition back into Luke, which we've been studying now for a little while. We're, we're in a series called The Kingdom or Kingdom and Cross, and Pastor Tim's been doing a great job taking us through here. And we're going to be in chapter 14, but before we get there, I want to show you guys something. We're going to talk a lot about Jesus, and I want you to focus in, as we talk today, on how Jesus interacts with the people around him. And so, before we even really get started, way back in chapter 9 of Luke, um, Jesus has this moment where he has sent out his disciples. They've done some cool ministry stuff. They've had some victories and some successes, and, but they come back at the same time that John the Baptist has just died. 
And so it's, there's, there's a lot of emotion in this moment, right? Good and bad. And so Jesus says, you know what? We need to get away. We need to go retreat, right? And so they retreat up the mountain. He's planning on spending time with just the disciples and pouring into them. And then verse 11 of chapter 9 goes like this. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And he healed those who needed healing. And I love that. It says, but the crowds, like somebody else figured out that Jesus is going up on the mountain. And they sort of like co-opted the moment. They, they joined in when they weren't really invited in the first place. And so you think about Jesus is about to have this, this special time with just his guys. And suddenly there's 5,000 men. It said, this is the, that's the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Okay, that's how it starts, right? There's all these people that follow Jesus up to the mountain. And what does he do? He actually, he takes the time to kind of, he puts a pause on what he's doing with the disciples and he welcomes the crowd. Did you catch that? It says that he welcomed them. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. And I want you to notice how Jesus welcomed them. They were interested. Who's this Jesus guy? What's he all about? I've heard he does these these cool miracles, and, and so they follow him up on the mountain. And Jesus' response to that was that he leaned into that opportunity. Hold that in your heart for a minute, because we're going to look at an entirely different situation that involves roughly the same group of people. Okay, so what we're going to do now is when we go to Luke 14 and we continue talking about this passage, what I want you to catch is that Jesus is going to talk to the crowds again, but this is the very last time that he talks to the crowds in the entire book. Okay, this is the last time before he goes to Jerusalem, the last time before he's crucified, that he talks to this large crowd of people, and you're going to see why here in just a minute. Let's look in 14.25. It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now that's a little bit different conversation, isn't it? Right? The first time, what well, we just read a minute ago, whenever the, the crowd follows Jesus up on the mountain and he just he welcomes them, he shows them the kingdom, he's healing people. And this time, it says that the crowds were traveling with him. You notice they're not just like interested anymore. They're not just like following him up the mountain. They're actually moving through the countryside with Jesus. And we're probably only weeks away from the cross at this point. So Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. He knows what's ahead, and he has an entirely different conversation. And, and I have to be honest, as, as a preacher, as a pastor, I, I think my ego would get in the way. If there were thousands of people following me around, I don't think I would turn around and think there's a problem with this, right? I would think that I'm probably doing something right. Everybody's paying attention to what I'm doing. And so it seems so backwards to me that Jesus would turn around, and, he, and it says he turns to them, right? It, he turns around and he sees this large crowd of people that are wanting to follow him, like genuinely be with Jesus. And then he discourages them. That doesn't seem like the Jesus that we're used to. That doesn't seem like that gospel light that we talked about a minute ago, right? Where it just, just no risk, all reward. And so pay attention to the emotion in this passage, right? He uses a word here. He says, if, if you want to be my disciples, you have to hate 
your father and your mother and your brother and all these family members. And man, I looked in the Greek. I was really hoping that that word meant something else and that I could come with this like really cool like explanation that it didn't really mean hate, you guys. It, it does. That's what the word means in the Greek. And so I do think that he's using hyperbole here, and we'll get to that in a minute, but I want you to catch the cultural context of what Jesus is, or when Jesus is having this conversation. You realize what he is saying to them is, you guys don't know where I'm going, but here in a week or two, they're gonna put me on a cross, right? Are you willing to sign up for that? Are you willing to be such a part of this that you might die too? What if you get caught with me? What if, what if your life doesn't go the way you think it's gonna go because of your relationship with me, right? And so he uses this dramatic language. He says, you have to be willing to hate your father and your mother and all these other people in your life. And, and I imagine, imagine the conversation that somebody in this crowd would have to have with their wife, right? You signed up for what? Do you hate me, right? Do you, you signed up to go die with this guy? And that would feel like hate, to those people in your life. And so what I think Jesus is saying here is he wants us to drop everything, right? He wants us to be wholeheartedly invested, loyal to him. And so he uses these examples. And again, in the cultural context, these people would literally be signing up to go to Jerusalem with him, possibly even die, right? But I think that the, the heart of what Jesus says carries with scripture all the way to now, right? And so think about this. He's talking about parents. He's talking about your wife and your kids and your life. What if you had an aging mother who called you and said, I'm lonely. Would you come spend the weekend with me? But you had already committed to be a greeter at church. Or maybe you had invited somebody from work to come to church and they said maybe they'd come and so you're not sure if they're gonna be there. What do you do in that moment? Or your wife, maybe your wife has plans for your vacation time, but so does Jesus right? Or your husband, you haven't seen him all day long because of work, but whenever you get home, you know that you need to get on your knees and pray about that one thing that Jesus has been working on you with. And time with Jesus and time with your spouse conflict. Or your kids, what if Jesus asked you to give, let's, let's say Jesus asked you to give money to a friend's mission trip, right? You just know, you know in your spirit that you're supposed to, to give to that mission trip. But giving to them would mean that your kid can't play soccer this year. Or giving to them means your kid can't go skiing this year or be in that club. Or your own life. It says you, might, what, you even need to hate your own life. Now, in, in our day and age, in our culture, you're probably not gonna be asked to give up your life, but you realize throughout the centuries, people have. People have had to give up their life for Jesus. And he says, that's the kind of loyalty and devotion that I want. That doesn't sound at all like that gospel light, does it? It sounds like you might actually have to put something into this relationship, doesn't it? Jesus is calling us to love him more than we love other people, period. And he says, can you do that? And he says that to the crowd, right? And I think it's actually a, it's, it's grace, it's mercy in that moment. He says, can you do that? Because if you can't do that, you probably shouldn't follow me here, right? But it would be the same thing with us. I think his heart would say, can you do that? Could you make your love for me so great that other relationships just look like, it looks like you hate them? And then he goes on and he's got these parables. We're gonna go through them kind of quick, but Jesus is really good at saying something and then explaining it with a story. And so in um, uh, 14, 28, it says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower 
Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. You know, this could easily just read, suppose one of you wants to build a closet. Won't you sit down first and make sure you can finish it before your wife gets mad at you, right? He's using my life to illustrate this point right here, right? And he says, essentially is count the cost. Don't start something you can't finish. Make sure that you're all in, right? Beginning to end here. And then he goes on and he's got another parable. Starts in verse 31. Or suppose a, a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long ways off and will ask for terms of peace. What he's saying here is, will your way work? Well, the way that you're doing it, like you've got half as many troops. Is that going to work? Again, count the cost. What will it take to make it work? And in this story, the only thing that you could possibly do to make it work is surrender, right? To give up and say, your way is the only way, right? And in either parable, what he's saying is you have to know what you're getting into before you do. That's not no risk, high reward, is it? There's something that you have to put into that. And so as fun as it is as a preacher and as a church and as a believer to enjoy and lean into the part where Jesus says, come to me no matter how you are. And that is what happened in chapter nine, right? Those people just showed up on the mountain broken and needy and he leaned into that. And we love that part of Jesus, right? But that's not the only part of the deal, right? And Jesus says, here's the other half of it. And then in verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. I don't know if you caught it or not. That's the third time that Jesus said, you cannot be my disciples to a group of people that are following him. That doesn't seem like the Jesus we know, does it? He says, you gotta give up everything. There's nothing out of bounds. And that's why he's focused on family relationships in this because I can't think of anything more valuable to me than my family, right? I, you, you could ask me to give up my home and that would be a whole lot easier than giving up my kids, right? You could ask me to give up my car or my lifestyle or my job, whatever it is, my American status. And it all pales in comparison to my family. And that's why he uses that. The most valuable thing that you have to offer Jesus is your love and devotion. You realize he doesn't need anything, right? But you also realize you don't have anything to offer him that he doesn't already have except for your love. That's the one thing he doesn't have if you don't give it to him. And so he says, that's the one thing that I want. He wants you to be desperate for him. And we wrestled with whether or not that was a good word to describe this. And so here's what I mean. Imagine you're, you're on your hands and knees crawling through a hot desert in the middle of the summer, in the middle of the sun, sunny part of the day, and you're desperate for water. That's what he wants. He wants you to be desperate for him. And then he goes on and he talks about salt in verse 34. And we're gonna, we're gonna go through it quickly. You guys, this could be its own message. It says, salt is good, But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. 
Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And basically what he's saying here is salt has value, but only when it does what it's supposed to. And he said, I would love for you to be my disciples. I'd love to be in this relationship. But you got to know what you're getting into. Because if, if you think you're in this and I don't have your heart, that's not what I want. Just like I wouldn't want fake salt on my table. Now, let's hit the pause button here for a second, because we've actually kind of gotten to the, the point, the force of the message already, but I think that we would miss something if we didn't continue and read part of chapter 15, and it's going to feel like totally disconnected. It's going to feel like a different scene, but if we just stopped here, you'd miss something. And, uh, and, and I know that Tim has talked about it before, but you guys know that the, the chapters and the verses and all of that, that wasn't part of the original letters, and it wasn't part of this to start with that was put in afterwards. And so we're going to keep going. We're going we're to go right over the chapter line. We're going to go to um, chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners. And eats with them. And you're, and you're like, why are we, why are we, <laughs> this seems like an entirely different scene. And it, and it probably is a different scene. I don't know if this is Jesus, like he just turns from the crowd and suddenly he's having this moment. Or if it's Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts these things together. But this is a pretty much a different scene. And so I want you to catch the setting. You've got tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees all involved right here. And so Think for a moment about what a tax collector is, okay? We've all kind of, if you grew up in church, you've heard the Zacchaeus song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And, and that's like, oh, a tax collector's like this bad guy that kind of, he took too much money when he shouldn't have, right? Taxes were $25, he took 30, he puts five in his pocket, bad guy. That's not a tax collector. Okay, a tax collector is somebody who was Jewish, but he signed up to work for Rome, who was the opposing oppressor, the enemy country that was ruling their nation. He signed up to work for them and rob his own people at their expense. He was signing up with the enemy. He was the enemy. That's a tax collector. Now, a sinner is kind of a broad category. It could mean all sorts of things, things like um, somebody that's a prostitute, somebody that's like, a, like done the worst possible things that you can think of in society, and they say, you can't be part of our group. But it could also be somebody with some physical ailment, some disease, some um, affliction. And so you got to remember that in the day, they thought if you had something really wrong with you, it was the result of your sin, and so you're unclean because of this ailment that you've got, and you must be a sinner. So again, they're ostracized. They're held at arm's length. You can't come into the temple. You can't worship. You can't give a sacrifice. Those people are kept away from the system that would connect them to God. And then you've got the Pharisees. And these are the guys, they live in the temple pretty much, right? Like that is their lifestyle. They're, they're surrounded by this all the time, so they're better. And they're not. Does that make sense? So that's the setting here. And Jesus is going to speak then to the Pharisees' attitudes. But what I want you to catch is the emotion of this. Pay attention as if you were the tax collectors and the sinners who felt like you could never get right with God. You weren't even allowed in the temple. What would you hear as Jesus has this conversation with the Pharisees? Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder, shoulders and he goes home. And I, I want you to catch the, like, the shepherd in this. He is desperate to find that sheep. Do you realize how reckless this seems? Right? First of all, it just seems almost like, uh, like it's not worth it, right? Like, why would you leave 99 sheep to go after the one? That just doesn't make sense. They make more sheep. You know that, right? Like, sheep make sheep. You're going to get one eventually, right? Why, why is it worth it, right? And then it's even more reckless because he doesn't go home first. It's not like he goes and he puts the sheep in a pen and then goes and look, looks for him. It says he leaves them in open country. He's explaining the heart of the Father here. And he's explaining it to the Pharisees, but imagine what the tax collectors are hearing. Imagine what they're hearing, that God would be almost reckless in the way that he would chase after you, that he would be so worried, so concerned, so desperate for you that he would chase you down and that he'd put you on his shoulders. Now, I was reminded of a story last night. When, when a shepherd is up in the hill country, and they have a sheep that goes astray, and they have to finally find, they finally find it, right? They, they catch up to it. Sometimes what they'll do with these young lambs is they'll, they'll break their leg and then put them on their shoulders with a splint. They fix it, right? But the entire time that that leg is healing, the shepherd will carry this young, wayward, broken sheep around. And so for the three or four weeks that it takes for that leg to heal, the sheep's always on the shepherd's shoulders, so that by the time it can walk again, it's so attached to the shepherd, it's never going to run away again. That's the picture here. And then we're going to move on to verse 6. He says, Then he calls his friends and neighbors together, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, if you're paying attention to the emotions here, a minute ago it was desperation, right? It was almost like recklessness, but now it's joy. Think again about these tax collectors and sinners. They, can't, they don't feel like they can ever be right with God. They're certainly not right with God's people, right? But they all know they're going to eventually have to see him, right? They all know when they die they're eventually going to have to see their God. But they're not living a life that's right with him. They can't get right with him. So imagine how they think that's going to go, right? Have you ever been worried about, like, if I ever see God, it's not going to go well, right? Have you ever had that, that emotion? Imagine how these guys felt, okay? The worst of the worst, the bottom of the barrel in society, and they're like, I'm not looking forward to that day. I'm going to have to go into his court, and he's going to be mad at me. And look at what this says. It says, not only do you not have to go to him, and he chases you down, that he comes after you, that meeting is not going to be one where you walk in with your head down because he's going to come running after you. And when he finds you, it's not bad, it's not fear, it's joy. The heart of the father, when he finds that lost sheep, is joy. And I'd say that there's, you can't be too far away to be caught by Jesus. You can't be too screwed up because when he finds you, it's just joy. And imagine how the tax collectors and the sinners are hearing this, right? Let's keep going. Verse eight, he starts another quick story. He says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. 
I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And I love this story. First of all, Jesus is trying to explain God, and he uses a woman. I'm just going to leave that there, okay? Now, what's cool about this is that it's probably nighttime, right? Because it says she lights a lamp. She's probably alone in her house with the door closed. She loses one of her coins, right? Why wouldn't she just wait until the sun comes up? She lights a lamp in the dark and gets down on her hands and knees. She digs around under the sofa, right? She's looking in the corners. She gets out a broom and she's sweeping the floor just hoping to hear that jingle, right? Because she's desperate to find the one coin. Again, talking about the heart of the Father, that he's desperate to find us when we're lost. What's cool about this is it tells us something about God, that he's willing to drop everything to find you. And if you're here and you've already put your faith in Jesus, he's the one who pursued, pursued you. He's the one, he chased you down. And the moment that you repented, the moment that you said yes to Jesus, there was rejoicing in heaven. But he's a God that would drop everything and chase you as long as it took. He's the God that would leave the 99 and come find you when you've ran away or sweep the house and get down and dirty and behind the, the gross parts of the house that nobody wants to ever see looking for you. Wholehearted devotion. He's all in. And so why would we put these two stories together? Why have this conversation to Jesus with this big crowd of people and then the, these conversations about the lost stuff? Because he is desperate for you. He won't settle for less than you being desperate for him. That's the cost. It's a relationship, right? The cost of following Jesus is your heart. Emotional attachment to Jesus. How many of us are really good at the, the intellectual part? We like to come and learn, right? We know some stuff. But are you attached to him personally? Are you desperate to be around him? Are you pursuing Jesus or are you pursuing church life? Because there's a difference. You can love ministry and not love Jesus. You can, you can love worship and not love Jesus. Right? So think back. At the beginning, I said that my, my closet project probably affects my wife more than it affects me. Right? Now, I know that not everybody in the room is married, but hopefully either everybody in the room has been on a date or you can identify with this. But imagine being on a date or out with your family if you're younger, right? And you're distracted. I mean, honesty in church, you ever done that, right? You're out with somebody and you're on your cell phone. You're paying attention to Facebook or Instagram or the news, or maybe you're just people watching out the window at the restaurant, right? You're there, but you're not really there. You're sort of in paying attention to something else. And so you went to dinner. You walked around downtown. You were together, but you weren't there. You can't remember if you actually made eye contact. You can't remember if you actually engaged in the conversation at the end of it. See, we all know that you can be married and be disconnected. We know that you can be in a family and be disconnected. Not only is that not fair to the other person, you don't get everything out of it that you could. I've done that. I've gotten home at the end of something out with my kids or my wife, and I realized I didn't really experience that. I missed it, right? They missed me in that moment, and I missed 
You ever have a, a conversation with somebody close to you and they tell you, I feel kind of lonely. And you're like, but I'm here all the time. And they're like, no, you're not. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here with Jesus. See, you experience more or less based on how engaged you are. He's all in. He's the one who's leaving the 99 to find you, right? He's the one, God would say, I gave my son up for you. We're talking about family relationships at the beginning of this, remember? He said, I put my son on a cross so that I could find you. I'm all in. But we experience more or less of that relationship based on how engaged we are, whether or not we're all in. And so why do we live like we don't love Jesus the most? Why aren't we desperate for him? I've got some ideas. These are some things that I came up with that, that make sense to me. I'm sure that you guys probably have other answers too. But I think sometimes I don't love Jesus the most because I'm prone to wander. You guys, you guys know that, that come thou fount hymn, right? And there's that verse in there that we're prone to wander. And I think we all identify with that, don't we? That I'm just naturally walking away from Jesus all the time. And I have to, sometimes I have to turn around and go, oh no, where'd he go? <laughs> right? I have to chase him back down like, where are you? Right? And then I'm, I'm distracted over here again. Right? Have you guys seen the movie Up? Okay, if, if you've seen the movie Up, there's a, or if you haven't, there's a character in there. It's an animated movie. Um, there's a character in there. His name is Doug. He's a dog. Okay? He's a talking dog. And I really like Doug because he is like your typical golden retriever, like your best friend. And so he's just so engaged. Like, oh, I love you. Right? Just total like, eye contact. Just, you are the best thing that's ever happened to my squirrel. And he gets distracted like that. And whatever this was went away. And suddenly he's like, there's something shiny over there in the distance, right? I'm that way. I'm that way with my relationship with Jesus sometimes. And I bet you are too. What about prosperity, right? Now, I realize not everybody in here lives the exact same life. But if you think back through all of human history, all the way around the world, we're doing pretty good as a group, aren't we? Right? We may struggle every once in a while to pay a bill here or there. We may have had some hiccups here or there in our life. But what do we actually need? Aren't we pretty self-sufficient? And I think sometimes that gets in the way of us being God-dependent, right? I'm, I'm pretty much taken care of most of the time. Or about this, just distractions. Isn't our, isn't our whole culture just one big walking distraction, right? I, I would bet right now if I made everybody be honest, you guys, as some of you have had your phones out several times during this message, right? <laughs> We create new inventions all the time to distract ourselves with. Now we've got watches that distract us. We've got glasses that Google Glass, that didn't really work, but it was a good idea to distract people, right? There's just, it's nonstop distraction in our culture. Or what about this? Maybe a, a fear of embarrassment? Let me make that make a little bit more sense. How many of you guys know that one weird Christian, right? Like the hyper Christian that's like, they're... They're Christians on steroids, right? Like everything's about God. Every, God told me this. God told me that. I'm doing this. And we look at them and we go, you're weird. I don't want to be weird. I want to blend in, right? And so we're like, I'm not going to be all in if it means I'm going to get noticed. I'd rather just sit in the crowd, right? And some people like to go to certain size churches, and I've heard this, because I get to blend in. Is that a good thing? Right? Or is it keeping you from being desperate for Jesus? Or what about just comfort? 
Sometimes we're just comfortable. Nothing's happening in our life that's making us uncomfortable. And so we're just along for the ride. Life just keeps going. And so here's the thing. All those things lead up to us being half-hearted, and God doesn't want half-hearted devotion. He wants you to be desperate. He doesn't want you to be distracted and then come back to him every once in a while. He doesn't want you to be so self-sufficient that you just don't need him. He's not okay with my half-hearted devotion. He's not okay with your half-hearted devotion either. He wants it all or nothing. That's the whole point of what Jesus said, right? You, you have to, like your relationships need to look like hate compared to how much you love me. You gotta be all in. So when do we tend to be the most desperate for him? I'm gonna give you the answer that I found all throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, there's one time that I can say every character who experienced this was desperate for God and it was when they were afflicted in their life. Affliction causes us to be desperate, right? Check out this, this verse in Psalm 119, verse 67. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. How many of us would identify with that, right? That like, there were times in my life where I kind of needed spanked, right? I kind of, I needed somebody to wake me up a little bit. And then this affliction came, this time in my life that was horrible. And man, that woke me up, right? Now see, affliction is, I would say that it's an evil thing. And so I don't think God is sending it, but God will use it, right? God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his name, right? He causes all things to work together for your good. Doesn't say he sends them, but man, when they're in your life, he'll use them, right? Things like divorce, God doesn't want you to be divorced. But I've seen divorced people get so desperate for Jesus that they are growing by leaps and bounds in their faith. They just, they can't get enough of him, right? Or an affair in your marriage. God doesn't want you to have an affair. But when you do, he sure likes it when you run to him, right? Or when you're cheated out of a job, or you're losing your business, right? There's lots of times in our life that we'd say, this evil or horrible thing happened to me. And that's when I got on my knees. I said, I can't do this. I can't fix this. And you're, you're just wrecked outside of yourself. And Jesus goes, man, I don't like what you're going through, but I like this. I like that you need me to solve this, that you're desperate for me. And in those moments, you spend more time with him. In those moments, you need him that much more. And your heart says, Jesus, Jesus, help me. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, thank And then you see some, like, some things turn around in your life, and you're like, wow, God is so good to me. That's what he wants. David was a good example of this, right? Think about, um, if you know the story of David, there was this time where he's King David, okay, shepherd David with the sling and then King David later, right? So David, supposed to be king, but not yet, and Saul, the real king, is chasing him through the desert, right? And they end up in the cave at the same time, and David has the, the high ground. He could kill Saul. He's close enough that he cuts off a piece of his garment even to prove later, like I could have, 
right? But he doesn't because he knows that that wouldn't be the righteous action in the moment. And so that's a real affliction. If you think about it, being chased through the desert by a guy with a sword, that's affliction. And he's so close to God at that point that his life reflects God's righteousness. Fast forward a few years. He's king. He's comfortable. And his guys are out in battle, and he doesn't even feel like he has to go out to battle anymore because he's the king, and he's in his mansion, and that's when he sins with Bathsheba, right? When there wasn't any more affliction. And so how do we cultivate a desperate attitude for God without affliction, right? I mean, God, God will look at your affliction and say, I, I can use this, but how do we get there without that? I've got some ideas for that too. Why don't we try leaning into some situations that are bigger than us, that force us to need him? Maybe you're scared, so scared to speak in front of a group, but there's a need for a a small group leader at church or or a teacher in the youth program, right? Or something at your job that you're just like totally not qualified for. But maybe if you applied for that job, if you stepped into that role and it was bigger than you and you couldn't handle that without Jesus, then you'd need Jesus. Maybe you sign up to, uh, to sell your house and move to Texas and then eventually go on a mission trip to Africa because that's scary and you need Jesus because it's scary. Maybe we lean into some things that are bigger than us. What about creating intimate time with Jesus? That's so a habit, right? This, what about creating time with Jesus that is personal? And I don't mean duty. I don't mean you have to accomplish something every day and check something off. I mean, what if you spent time with Jesus in a way that whenever you didn't, you felt like you missed him? What if you're so used to your quiet time and your prayer time that it's, you feel empty when you don't have it? That would make you desperate for him. You'd be uncomfortable without him. What about getting outside of your routine and your bubble, right? How many of us would say, I live a pretty comfortable life, right? Like, if, if I want to, I can fill my life up with my own stuff and none of it really bothers me. And maybe you need to find the hurt in the world, Maybe you need to go looking for some things that break Jesus' heart. And I'll bet you wouldn't have to go very far to find it. I'll bet you could find it in our school system. I'll bet you could find it in our community. I'll bet you could find it in just probably in your own family if you tried hard enough. What if you found the hurt? What if you got a little bit uncomfortable, got outside of your bubble? What if your heart started to break for the things that break Jesus' heart? That would make you desperate for him. Maybe you need to give up some things. Maybe we need to start practicing putting God ahead of some things in our life that we think we need or want, right? Maybe Maybe it's what your kids want. Maybe we need to learn to say no to something that our kids want so that we can say yes to something for Jesus. Or maybe it's something that your husband or your wife wants. That one's hard, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to say no to something. But maybe we need to give up some things. Maybe we need to give up putting people in the place of God. Maybe we've made an idol out of our wife or our kids or our husband or our parents. Maybe it's your parents. 
And if, if I could speak to the young people in the room that are just like recently married, maybe it's your parents' relationship that you need to let go of a little bit and say yes to what Jesus is calling you to in your new family. Maybe you need to sign up for something that scares you, right? Maybe you need to make room in your schedule for more time with Jesus. I don't know what it is, okay? But I know that he's calling you to be desperate because the cost of following Jesus is your heart. And he'll take nothing less. So is your heart there? And if it's not, my encouragement would be, we need to spend some time repenting. We need to do some time apologizing is Jesus the spouse that you ignore on your date? Are you breaking Jesus' heart because he's all in and you're not? Maybe we need to apologize for that. Maybe we need to spend some time, emotional, personal time, saying, I'm sorry. And then we need to step outside of our comfort zone. We need to lean into the things that God wants. And we need to practice being desperate for him. I'm going to pray over you guys. If you guys would stand up for me real quick. Um, we'll pray and then we can go. Lord Jesus, um, thank you that there's clarity in scripture and that we don't have to make this up on our own because I think we would make it easier and easier every time we talked about it. I'm sorry for the times that we've made it too easy and we don't communicate the cost. But I'm also sorry when we don't communicate the value of a God that would chase us down. When we don't communicate the truth of how much you love us and how it might take everything that we have, but it's so worth it. I pray that you'd work on our hearts. Do some surgery in us. Change us from the inside out as only your spirit can. In Jesus' name, amen.